Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Welcome to Deconstructive Criticism, or Deconstructive Critique, as it is known in Swedish. I am Aaron Flam, and today's guest is Spiked Online editor Brendan O'Neill. Brendan had the gall to criticize Sweden's godsend prophet Greta Thunberg. Brendan's article was such an obvious example of climate heresy that I had to travel to London to confront him about his heinous act of heterodoxy. Against a child, nonetheless. The humanity. I think the word gall is warranted, even though it is slightly racist against French people, even though the Swedish crown is falling like it's on a halo dive without a parachute, or as Financial Times put it, the worst performing major currency in the world so far this year. It has dropped 8% against the dollar and more than 5.5% against the euro, which is its most important benchmark. The demise of the moral superpower of Sweden is a train wreck in slow motion. As the social democracy is failing on all fronts, the left in Sweden has run out of arguments. All the larger social engineering programs are failures comparable in scale only to the denial of the failure. Immigration, terrorism, justice, policing, schooling, gender science, as it is called here, are producing poor results if not actually the opposite results than intended. The only place left for egalitarian collectivists to run is the Church of Gaia, hoping that the complexity of the question of man's mortality will provide a shield of pure faith against the unbelievers who seem to be growing in numbers. 500,000 Swedes has joined a protest against higher fuel prices on Facebook so far. Going to London is suddenly quite a luxury, even if you just eat pizza. But worth it nonetheless, because Brendan's opinion piece had apparently upset a lot of people, not only in Sweden, but in England and all over the place. Greta is quite popular. 
but I mostly went to London also because Brandon is a charm to talk to. I am recording this introduction a few weeks after the article was published and a week or two after visiting London. So there are two important things you need to know about Sweden before you hear our conversation. Lest you think that I am just pouring gasoline on Brampton's mental bonfire and stoking hate against a child. They are in a sense connected to the phenomena of Greta Thunberg. First, Sweden has reopened the case against Julian Assange. Sweden has been a naughty little social democracy and helping the United States in prosecuting Julian Assange would perhaps make the rest of the world forget that Sweden has actively worked against Western interests and that its economy is in free fall. Largely because of these policies that weirdly enough range from financing Islamism, migration terrorism, narco-policy to spreading gender science. If you think I sound crazy, one of the alleged victims, Anna Ardin, whose case will not be reopened because the statute of limitations has passed, tweeted this when Julian Assange was arrested by British authorities. 12.52pm, 11th of April 2019. Anna Ardin, at The Real Ardin. I would be very surprised and sad if Julian is handed over to the US. For me, this was never about anything else than his misconduct against me, women, and his refusal to take responsibility for this. Too bad my case could never be investigated properly, but it's already been closed. End quote. She has since become a deacon, and nowadays she describes herself on Twitter as a, I quote, radical feminist who... I quote, battles the curiarchy in favor of freedom, climate, animal rights and feminism, which might sound harmless enough until you know that curiarchy is defined as, quote, a neologism coined by Elizabeth Schüssler Fiorenza and derived from the Greek words for lord or master, curios, and to rule or dominate, archine, which seeks to redefine the analytic category of patriarchy in terms of multiplicative intersecting structures of domination. Curiarchy is best theorized as a complex pyramidal system of intersecting multiplicative social structures of superordination and subordination of ruling and oppression, end quote. Basically, it's an ideology that turns your reality into handmaid's tale with handmaidens and commanders. And even that might sound benign to you until you realize that in practice, extended far enough, you'd have to kill all cats because they oppress mice, and all mice because they oppress cheese, and so on until it's all gone. One can never tell what has happened between two people, but... Anna Ardin's ideology and long activity as a small group of sextremists that call themselves feminists here in Sweden makes her accusation against Julian Assange somewhat suspect. I know that must sound extremely harsh, but aside from this, she is also a member of the board of the Swedish Christian Social Democrats Faith and Solidarity Movement, formerly known only as the Christian Brotherhood which is ironic because it has been working with and helping fund the growth of the Muslim Brotherhood, both in Sweden as well as in Europe for at least three decades now. The change in name was suggested when they opened up to more faiths than Christianity, which they only did to let in members of the Muslim Brotherhood in Sweden. They are a powerful and influential group within the Social Democratic Party and has been for a very long time. More than 50 years, I'd say. Personally, I think Anardin is dangerously deranged.
Anardine wrote an op-ed in the church's newspaper on the 24th of April this year, 2019, where she proclaims Greta a prophet of God on earth. Anardine and Joachim Krogson, who is an environmental certifier for the church, whatever that means, they write that, I quote, We want to claim that Sweden has a prophet active right now. Her name is Greta Thunberg and is fully comparable to the prophets of the Bible, end quote. Then they list the comparisons to the prophets of the Bible and add that, quote, Greta has Asperger's and sees the world in black and white, as she herself has said. That gives her other eyes than many of us others, end quote. They conclude that, quote, the entire point with a prophet and the point of this article is to never celebrate the individual, not to celebrate Greta, The point is that we have to listen to the message, because the message comes from God. It demands radical conversion to a fossil-free life and society. End quote. These are not secular arguments. They are religious arguments and should be completely unacceptable in public discourse. They are also batshit crazy. They are not Greta's arguments, but it is not like she has denounced the claim either nor has the team around her. And these facts might be good for you to carry with you into this conversation with Brendan O'Neill. Enjoy. Welcome back to Deconstructive Criticism, Brendan O'Neill, editor-at-large for Spiked Online. Now, last time I interviewed you, I intentionally did not ask you about environmentalism. But now you've had the goal to criticize our child god, Greta Thunberg. And why would you do a thing like that? Because um, everyone thinks I was attacking her, herself, young Greta, which, you know, would be a pretty mean thing to do because she's a 16-year-old and she looks even younger than 16, sounds younger. And in, in, a, in a sense, I was. I was criticizing her style and her delivery and the fact that she does often look like a cult member and sound like a cult member, you know, standing up on stage and intoning to the world about how we're all going to die in some hell fire and be punished for our eco sins. So I think people who do that deserve criticism or should expect criticism. But the main reason, the main people I'm worried about are the people who are exploiting her, the people who are using her to front their miserablest uh, eco-friendly campaigns um, who are very cynically pushing her as the kind of messiah of environmentalism, the kind of the god child off the eco view of life. Um, and I think the people doing that are being incredibly um, censorious because the aim is to prevent any criticism whatsoever of their political agenda. How? By, by, when, when people use children as moral shields, it's always about deflecting criticism. Because if you've got a child at the front of your political campaign or your moral campaign or your campaign for censorship or whatever it is, um, your aim is to say this campaign is beyond reproach because if you criticize it, you're criticizing the children. And that's exactly what's happened. You know, the response to the article I wrote on Greta has been absolutely bananas. Uh, it's been it's, it's this crazy Twitter storm. There were numerous articles in the press about this. Um, it's, people have been slagging me off on radio and TV. Now, I can live with all that. That's fine. But it, it kind of proves the point I was making, which is that she has been elevated into this messianic figure, uh, the kind of prophet of doom who has seen the future uh, and, and the hellfire that is going to consume the earth. And she's come back 
back in time to tell us all about it. That's really how she is treated. And I think um, Greens and politicians and the European Union and various other powerful institutions who have no solutions whatsoever to the economic crisis are cynically using her to push this kind of um, backward, anti-progressive, anti-human agenda. I think that's bad for her because she is an autistic and incredibly fearful girl and they're using her fear for political ends and that will make her thought processes even more damaged. And it's bad for politics because it's designed precisely to end political debate by saying this girl is speaking the truth and you may not contradict her. So it's bad for everyone and everything. Yeah, um, the fact that she looks younger than uh, her 16 years has to do with her Asperger's, actually, mm. because a part of her diagnosis is uh, she has a diagnosis of self-harm. Mm. Yes, well, th this is one of the problems. You know, she is, according to her family's own account, she's a self-harmer, right? This is, I would argue, and I know I'm not very good at politically correct language, I do try sometimes, I would argue that she's a mentally fragile young person she's a mentally unstable young person that is what her own family's account suggests that is what her own account suggests she is um she has a mental condition uh, asperger syndrome she is incredibly scared this is a young girl who has stood up in front of the european parliament and cried because she thinks the future she hasn't got a future she talks about the house being on fire she means the planet being on fire She says people of her generation will might not live very long. She is consumed by fear. And that raises so many questions for me. Firstly, it makes me think, what the hell are they teaching children at schools these days? It's like fire and brimstone stuff. It's even worse than what we got. I went to a Catholic school. Um, and, you know, Catholics really do believe that the end of the world will come and we will be judged for our sins. But even we didn't get taught anything as hysterical as that. So I'm really worried about what's being taught to kids in Europe in schools about climate change. It seems to me that they're being taught a very fearful, anti-human, misanthropic view of the future as this incredibly doom-laden sphere and we're all going to die. So that's the first question. And the second question it raises for me is why on earth are adults, supposedly responsible political adults, looking at this girl and seeing an opportunity rather than seeing a young person who needs probably a bit of help and a bit of comfort and to have a normal life so that she can get over these panics, this panic and fear that she has. But instead of treating her like a young person who needs guidance and assistance, they've seen her as an opportunity. They've seen her as someone they can exploit. For what? For to re-energize the environmentalist argument, which had been slipping off the agenda. Over the past two or three years, the whole climate change panic had slipped off the agenda uh, because we've had the populist revolt, we had the Trump phenomenon, we had Brexit, we've had various revolts across Europe where people are voting for parties they're not supposed to vote for. And all of this has led to, I would argue, the re-energizing of politics to a certain extent, where questions of democracy and power and sovereignty and all these things have come back into play. As a consequence of that, all the stuff that we had been told to panic about for years, like climate change, slipped off the agenda. And the kind of upper middle classes who are obsessed with climate change and obsessed with the idea that the planet is disgusting and industry is disgusting and people are too fat and people are driving too much, that section of society was so aggrieved at the fact that climate change had been shunted down the list of concerns. And so they've, they're coming back now with a vengeance. That's why we also have this movement called Extinction, 
Extinction Rebellion, which is a bunch of very bourgeois, um, well, people from well-off backgrounds who are going through the streets and saying people have got to stop flying and stop driving to the supermarket and stop having a nice life and instead just live in a cold, small house and never eat meat. Yeah, that's what Greta is saying. That's what Greta that's is her, saying. That's her argument. She begins every speech by saying, I want you to panic. Yes. I want you to feel the same panic that I feel yeah. every day, in which, of course, she's absolutely right. Uh, not the least because she's a hero uh, and a me- media icon in my country. But you didn't exactly formulate yourself like that in 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 the in the article you wrote about mm. her. Uh, I think you said one can imagine her in a sparse wooden church in the Plymouth Colony in the 1600s, warning parishioners of the hellfire that will rain upon them if they fail to give up their witches. Yes, that's. Is that a very uh, uh, productive way to uh, no. formulate yourself? Because I tried to uh, to formulate myself uh, similarly. I said, there's smoke from the volcano, quick sacrifice a virgin. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, no, it's not a productive way to formulate yourself. But, you know, sometimes people are productive and sometimes they're not productive. But the point I was making, which everyone missed, whether willfully or not willfully, Uh, the point I was making is not that she appears like a cult member and sounds like a cult member because she has Asperger's. I'm saying she appears like this because she has been brainwashed by an education system and a political class which has trained the next generation to live in fear. That's why I think she appears the way she does. It, it seems like no one got to the end of the article. It's, an, it's not even a very long article, but at the end of the article, I talk about the fact that she has Asperger's and I talk about the fact that she's fearful. And I say the real problem here are the adults who are exploiting this poor young woman. That's how I refer to her. So, so one of the points I do make very in that in that piece at the very start of this whole ridiculous controversy um, is that the real issue is the exploitation of her. And my point about, you know, she looked like she could have been in the Plymouth colony and she looked like she could have been one of those young girls who was kind of, you know, pointing out witches and whatever, was not to to say she's autistic, therefore that's why she's like this. It was exactly to say it's because um, environmentalism has become a cult. The opening line in the piece is, if you doubt that environmentalism has become a cult, just look at Greta Thunberg. So my from the very get-go, my criticism is of environmentalism, not people with Asperger's. So that's the point I'm making, and I would stick by that point forever. Environmentalism, the politics of environmentalism, has become a cult. It's got all the qualities of it. It's got this incredibly strong belief system, which if you um, dissent from it, you're in serious trouble and you'll be called a denier in the exact same way that people who were dragged before the Inquisition were seen to be deniers of the truth of God. Um, it's got an end of the world feel to it. The end is nigh. It's coming. We've got exactly 12 years. How they work this out is a mystery to everyone. We've got exactly 12 years to save the planet. Otherwise, we're finished. Um, and it's got the repentance element to it, where you're supposed to walk through the streets and repent for the fact that you have ever flown, repent for the fact that you ever... Don't tell me you're one of those who don't feel flight shame. <laughs> no, I never feel flight shame. I feel flight pride. And um, I am incredibly, I feel incredibly lucky to live at a time when humanity has conquered the problem of gravity, can now fly around the world, where meat is cheap, 
and easily available, which it wasn't for generations and generations, where even people in China, um, in their millions, in their tens of millions, have left behind absolute poverty and now live in cities and eat food and, and drive cars and all sorts of other things. These are all wonderful breakthroughs. But according to these bourgeois, depressive, hippie idiots, we're supposed to think that's all really terrible. And I just want some perspective on this. I want to put what I would consider to be the humanist, progressive view, which is that it's a good thing that human beings now have more choice, more freedom, more ability to travel, and more access to cheap food, more uh, air conditioning, more heating. All of those are good things which have improved people's living conditions. And my argument would be that we need to get ensure that everyone has access to those things, including the 3 billion people who still live on less than $10 a day, rather than saying, how can we stop economic growth? The question, I went to one of these Extinction Rebellion marches in London, and I said to some of the people there, um, how can you march against economic growth at a time when 3 billion people still live in extreme poverty? To me, that is so uh, such cognitive dissonance. It's so What strange. did they see? They had they had no answer except you know some of them would fudge it by saying well you know the problem is that we in the West have too much and we need to give some of it to the third world as if you could have these kind of transactions between a it's rich, called socialism it's, but yeah but even 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 though some of them I'm sure were socialists even then it's bizarre this idea that you could have you know a, a rich family in Islington in London could somehow give some of their stuff to a a really poor family in Botswana. I mean, the practicalities of it simply don't work. So, my Especially argument, if you can't fly the stuff down. And you can't fly it. How are you going to get it there? It would take months and months. Um, so my argument is we need more industrialization, more progress, more economic growth for the simple reason that there are still human beings who live in extreme poverty, which I think is unacceptable. Now, if you say that to people these days... They will say you're a climate change denier, you don't care about the planet, you hate Greta Thunberg, all these kind well, of... Well, do you deny that there is an element of uh, human activity in the climate change we are going through now? They are saying that we're going through climate change now, and it's already here. Yes. I, I always have described myself as a climate change skeptic rather than a climate change denier, because it seems... Pre- I don't understand science particularly well but it does seem pretty clear to me that climate change is happening and it seems pretty clear to me that there is a human contribution to that so i don't doubt the kind of basics of their argument what i do doubt is their extrapolation from that to create this narrative of fear and doom and this kind of pseudo-religious idea that the world is coming to an end because that's a moral interpretation of scientific claims and scientific discoveries that that's an in, a highly moralistic interpretation and then i also um seriously question their argument that the climate the fact of climate change means we have to have less economic growth means we have to rein things in means we have to stop flying it doesn't mean that at all we, no we have to stop everything we have to that's, stop everything. that's that's the argument greta is making we have to stop everything yeah everything Because she is their prophet of doom. She is the person who uh, they, they have very cynically and quite recklessly anointed as their um, as the godchild of their doom mongering script, which they've been pushing now for a few decades. Um, and to them, she is the perfect articulation of their culture of fear. Do you know anything about her family? A little bit. I've read some of the 
coverage. Some of the coverage that's been in Sweden has since made its way into her mother artists. is a great artist. She's a soprano or yeah. something, opera singer, and um, um, but she's also completely fucking insane. Um, <laughs> no, I'm I'm serious. Uh, right. The editor of my podcast also edited her uh, uh, the reading of her book. Right. So, and she reads her book in a very soprano voice, right. and, and where she she talks about this. And I mean, looking yeah. at Greta and the self harm, it's not very far uh, from stigmata. Yeah, you, you know, yeah. you remember uh-huh. stigmata. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, it's 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 fairly close, I'd say. And 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 her father manages Greta's career, uh, and Greta is in a she's in a state school for kids with autism and and they've given her leave to take uh, school strikes on Fridays and he uh, the father is also associated somehow with some PR company that took in money uh, as you said because they want to sort of uh, well they want a clean and neat demographic to sell eco-friendly merchandise to well you know it's the stigmata thing I think is a very good description of it and and the the other thing because after I wrote my piece, which, by the way, was basically a filler article, we felt that we didn't have enough articles one day. And so my, I was talking to my deputy editor and he said, let's do something on Greta Thunberg. It wasn't even this conscious planned thing. I wrote it in about half an hour and then everything went nuts. But as a, one of the, uh, some of the responses to my piece have been written, The Guardian has published two articles by people who suffer from autism. And they are, uh, those articles and others that I've seen in response to what I wrote are making the point that um, it's partly Greta's autism which makes her special and which makes her so insightful. So one of the arguments I've seen, and I've seen Greta herself make this argument, is that the fact that she's on the spectrum gives her a special view of the world, which means she can understand things better than other young people can understand things. And she explicitly says this. She explicitly says people just don't understand, they lack the information, they can't see what she sees. So there's a, a real a sense of the religious visionary. You know, she can see what's happening, she can see the future, she can understand things in a more profound, um, other planetary way. Um, and so even that has a religious vibe to it. It is. It uh, has, because she says in interviews, if you dare to question her, if you, if you ask, but what are your arguments? I mean, because, she, and she says, well, this is a binary question. Yeah. This is but, a black yeah, and white question. Yes. And you know what's also really interesting is that people will, uh, people often say to me, and they have done over the past week, they will say, well, you know, what kind of cult is built on science? The environmental thing is all about science. But even if you look at the way in which they use science, they use it in a religious way. It's really striking. They always talk about the science. It has the word the at the beginning. So it's this kind of definitive. It's like the word of God. The science says this. Um, And they completely misrepresent what science is supposed to be. Science is not supposed to be this rigid, definitive declaration of what human beings must do. Science is supposed to be um, a discovery about the natural world, which tells us something about the natural world, which tells us something about um, medicine or nature or some other area of life, um, which then human beings can choose to act on in various different ways. But that is a moral question. That's a political question. That's a question of what humanity thinks it needs and and how it will use the science or not use the science. But the way they talk about science is as a form of gospel truth. Um, And I've seen environmentalists marching in the streets with uh, placards that say things like, um, listen to the science 
or 96% of scientists agree with us or um you know how can how can Donald Trump go against the science and that's when it becomes this kind of stricture this religious instruction that you must obey the science that so not only is that bad for politics because it means anyone who criticizes their political agenda is written off as a philistine and anti-science and a denier it's bad for science too because the more that science comes to play this political role the more polluted science will become with political agendas and i i'm uh, i am pretty certain that there are lots of climate change scientists climate scientists and other uh, scientists to do with the atmosphere and so on who now recognize that they can become famous and glorious and wonderful if they say the right thing if they come up with the right conclusion which of course is that humanity is a piece of shit and is destroying the planet if their research points in that direction it's thumbs up greta thunberg will be quoting them the in ipcc or whatever it's called will be falling at their feet they will be quoted in the guardian they might even get on tv but if they come up with something which says um it's not that bad the end of the world's not that close and here are lots of various technological things we can do to offset the problem no one will listen to them. They'll But what about on. the hole in the ozone layer? Well, you know, this, this is the other thing that always makes me laugh. There are so many. Uh, it's the the doom, the end of the world idea has changed so many times. Do you remember acid rain? Oh yes. They used to all be about acid rain. I remember when I was very young. Maybe it was my brother's generation. But when I was back then. Kids were fearful that suddenly it would rain and their skin would fall off like something from Indiana Jones. There was this real fear that this hot rain would come down. No one really understood what acid rain meant. Then it was global warming, which no one really uses that phrase now anymore, global warming. They now talk about climate change because there have been years in which the didn't warm very much after all. Uh, so the language changes all the time and you can go back even further before acid rain. You can go back to the 1960s and the whole panic about pesticides. You know, the book The si Silent Spring published in the US in 1960, I think, which was about the danger of DDT and pesticides and that was the great panic for the hippie generation, yeah. how these human-made pesticides would destroy nature and kill all the birds. Well, that didn't happen. And you can go back even before that to the population scaremongers thomas malthus the reverend thomas malthus of uh, in the late 1700s and the early 1800s who wrote the first really the first modern panic popular um, pamphlet about population growth and he said there's not going to be enough food to feed the growing number of human beings well back then there were only there was i think less than a billion human beings what he didn't foresee was the industrial revolution which radically transformed how we make things and how we transport things he couldn't foresee that because he was a pretty miserableist anti-humanist person who who thought humanity wasn't up to much wasn't good at many things so he couldn't foresee that industrial revolution which meant in fact that we not only could feed everyone who lived but billions more so every prediction they've made the population time bomb acid rain destroying us um pesticides killing all the birds global warming which is now gone ozone layer ozone layer you know it, when i was at school i remember everyone used to be scared to put on deodorant and hairspray because yes. we were convinced that every time we pressed the button on the spray there'd be another bit in the hole in the ozone i mean we really did think like that it was all bullshit because what is happening as a result of all these things is is there's an already existing culture of doom 
There's an already existing culture of doom and it's been around for a few decades because the bourgeoisie has utterly lost faith in its own project and now thinks that it's not actually possible to keep progressing society and therefore we have to kind of hide and rein in and be quiet again. So that already existing culture of doom and lack of self-confidence and so on is always looking for an outlet through which it can express itself. So it latches on to different things. It latches on to the population time bomb, and then it latches on to acid rain, and then it latches on to the ozone layer. Now it's latched on to climate change, and now it's latched on to Greta Thunberg and her predictions of doom and hellfire and so on. So the issue is not with Greta. The issue is with this culture of panic and fear and anti-humanism, which has been around for a pretty long time, which just manifests itself in different ways. So it's a form of collective manifestation of fear of death. It's a collective manifestation of the fear of um, human progress, which they think will lead to death. They think we will experience the heat death of the planet because of um, if there is too much human progress. So it's... Um, I think it's an, you know, I get a lot of flack and a lot of climate change skeptics get a lot of flack, but I think we should refuse to be defensive and we should simply say, um, listen, listen to us. Human beings live in grinding poverty. Right now, there are human beings who live in grinding poverty. I mean, the kind of poverty where they have to have 10 children because they know six of them will die before the age of five. That kind of poverty. In a world where that is still happening, I find it simply mind-boggling that people can march through the streets saying we have to stop economic growth, we have to stop progress, we have to have sustainable development in the, in Africa because real development would destroy the planet. I I think we need to turn it back on them and say, listen, the, the destructive people, the horrible people, the wicked people is not us. It's who, the Chinese. It's, <laughs> in their view, it's also the Chinese, yeah. It's you, right? It's yeah. it's you people who are on the streets, perfectly oblivious or uncaring about the fact that our fellow human beings are still struggling to make ends meet in a really profound way. And you're on the streets uh, with your iPhones from your, you know, your, your generations of wealth, because a lot of them are quite wealthy, calling for an end to economic growth. I mean, that is obscene. They are the ones who are being obscene, not us. Uh, I would say so. Uh, and I brought up the Chinese just because uh, in Sweden, <laughs> basically, there are two sides to the climate debate. There are 9,999,999 people on Greta's side. And then there's one guy <laughs> saying, no, the Chinese are the problem. You know, but we, there's some of that here, too, in fact. And um, because they use too much coal. Because they use too much coal. You know, I'm very pro-Chinese growth. And I have been for a long time. I don't understand why, but but I'll shall I explain to you? Yes, I'll try. Um, you see them as yeah. humans, <laughs> of course. <laughs> right. uh, and you want them to have stuff. I want them to have stuff. Can you believe it? And I want them to be uh, um, economically equal to us. And they're getting there bit by bit. But the way I see China, I've been to China three times. Um, it is as environmentalists describe it. It like I've been to Beijing, and and I thought it was everyone there has acne. Right, I've been there too. Yeah, it's but it's also um, you know I th before I went, I was reading all these articles in the Guardian and elsewhere saying there are there is so much pollution in Beijing that they have these things called grey days, where there's just this fog of pollution descends and you can't see anything. And I thought that's an exaggeration, but it's not. 
those days actually exist. And while I was there, there one happened where the entire city was covered in this grey fog, and it wasn't natural fog. So that stuff is all true, and it's true that the Yangtze River is full of crap. And it's true that the Yangtze River dolphin has become extinct, although I think they found one recently, because of pollution. It's all true, right? The, the issue is this. I think China at the moment is similar to, to what Britain was like in the mid-1800s in the sense that it's going through an industrial revolution, or it's going through various economic revolutions, which are by necessity difficult and ugly and confusing and damaging in some ways but you have to go through that process in, in order to come out the other end as a developed nation as a wealthy nation because what can a wealthy nation do a wealthy nation can devote more resources to cleaning up the environment so it's exactly what the situation in britain is like our industrial revolution was filthy and horrible and people kids were falling down chimneys and people were dying in coal mines and the whole you know all these new cities that became huge cities as a consequence in the, of the industrial revolution london and manchester and sheffield and glasgow liverpool these they became these machine like cities pumping black smoke every minute of the day um that will not have been a very nice place to live for about 10, 20, 30, 40 years. But it was necessary to go through that process in order to arrive where we're at now. It's an environmentally clean country and it's a very comfortable country and there's very little poverty. China needs to go through that too. I think a lot of the Westerners, whether it's Swedes or Brits or whoever it is, who are you know finger-wagging at China for daring to do what we have already done, that's a shocking double standard. I do think there's sometimes an element of racism to it, but there's certainly a process where we're kind of raising the drawbridge. You know, we've got all this nice stuff. We don't want you to have it, so we're going to raise the drawbridge and leave you out there. They do that even more so with Africa. These environmentalists don't give a damn about Africa. They don't give a damn about Africa, except... You know, they might kind of contribute to a charity which will give a goat to an African But don't family. you think they have this romantic notion about returning to nature because they feel yeah. so alienated from it? And my view is that, I mean, I mean, at least Sweden, which is, I mean, pretty much untouched by Catholicism. Yeah. And Protestantism was sort of taken from the Germans and they made their completely own thing with it, the Swedes. So w when you look at Swedes, it's more like a, they're egalitarian collectivists. Mm. Which means they, they don't see themselves as separate from nature. They see themselves as a part of nature. Yes. Uh, and, and every time you chop down a tree or uh, burn some wood, uh, you're desecrating a holy thing, uh, Mother Earth, Gaia, basically. Yeah. You, you understand? I do understand. And I do think a lot of environmentalism is driven by a romantic view of nature, uh, a desire to return to nature, but without any understanding of what that really means. Now, what they think it means um, is that you'll live on this really green piece of land and there'll be like some wolves running by at night and you'll have, you know, <laughs> you'll cook some food over a little fire and it'll be lovely. No, Living at the mercy of nature is not lovely. Living at the mercy of nature is terrifying and um, barbaric and your life will be short and brutish. Sounds like Hobbes. <laughs> right? It will, you know, it's like... Um, <laughs> well, nature has been trying to kill us since day yeah, one. Yeah, nature... The whole point of nature is to kill human beings. That's what it does. 
and it does it incredibly effectively. And civilization, if you had to sum up civilization in one sentence, it would be mankind's escape from nature. Now that, now we still are, we are off nature. We are natural beings. We are part of the natural world, whether we like it or not. But we no longer live at the mercy of nature. We've escaped nature's whims. We've escaped nature's tyranny. Yeah, that's what civilization is. Civilization is us removing ourselves from nature in a way that other animals are incapable of doing. Um, now, my great concern for human humanity is that not everyone has managed to do that. Right. So if there is an earthquake in um, Los Angeles, 27 people might die. If there's an earthquake in ha- Haiti, 100,000 people will die. Now, the difference is that Haitians haven't escaped the whims of nature as much or as successfully as people in Los Angeles have. So that's the problem. So when people say they want to go back to nature, I always say to them, look, the people who live closest to nature have much shorter lives than you, have much more difficult lives than you, and um, have much more unpredictable lives than you. We have to do everything we can to remove them from the mercies of nature and allow them to live in an industrialized, civilized space. So I, I think you're absolutely right that, it's a, it's a complicated question, though, because people, and this is a, a fundamental problem for humanity for a long period of time, where we feel alienated from nature as a consequence of the process of civilization, and we want to go back to nature in, in an incredibly romanticized, infantile way that's not reasonable or really achievable. I think what we have to do is talk about more openly about humanity's relationship with nature how we can ensure that we hold nature at bay while at the same time feeling that we're still part of it and feeling that we can enjoy it and feeling that it is around us but it's not going to kill us that's the challenge we face well i think uh, individualists which i count you as one uh, they view nature quite differently i mean if an individualist encounter a mountain he wants to climb the mountain he wants to you, you understand dominate yeah. the mountain yeah now if a bunch of collectivists encounter a mountain they will set a camp at the foot of the mountain and start worshiping it there are two <laughs> these are two different views of nature yes you know um one of the great instincts of humanity over the past in modern times has been a desire to um conquer nature yeah um you know well at least western yeah uh, you know every single tool and piece of machinery and piece of technology human beings create is about conquering nature right the ship is about conquering oceans which uh, uh, stand in our way um the airplane is about you know nature forgot to give us wings right that's a real pain because it's 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 good to fly so we invent them fly shame on you fly shame on you you know (laughs) nature um didn't do a very good job with us you know it did some good stuff well not a great job um because there are still things we can't do we can't fly we can't just leap across the ocean we can't just magic ourselves onto the moon so we create technology and tools that allow us to do that and every single one of those technology and every single one of those tools is about defying nature and that defiance of nature that willful arrogant humanistic um, desire to to defy nature and to escape the limitations of nature was a positive was a really positive driving force and it's of civilization also, yeah and it's also much more of a rebellion than, much Gre- more, than greta's rebellion much that's such an important point it is so much more of, of a rebellion and i would argue that 
you know, there are currently African campaigners who um, want to use uh, pesticide, pesticides and, and genetic modification in their crops and so on. And they are horrified that there are so many influential, posh, well-off Westerners who are anti-GM and will refuse to sell GM crops from Africa in Europe, which then completely fucks over those African farmers. I think those African campaigners whose name is known by no one in the West, are far more rebellious than Greta Thunberg, are far more deserving of our support, and are far more in keeping with the humanist tradition, which is to defy nature and to expand human possibilities. What we have with the cult of Greta Thunberg, and again, I just want to reiterate, the problem with the cult of Greta Thunberg is not Greta Thunberg, it's the influential people who've made a cult around her. The problem with that cult is that it is the latest and the strongest for a long time, the latest and strongest manifestation of um, a completely unrebellious, conformist, slavish desire to reign in human aspirations. There is nothing celebratory in it whatsoever. I think that's quite a good tip to kids out there, that (laughs) if your parents, the state... All media and the Pope support your rebellion. It's probably not a rebellion. That's a really good way to measure things. You know, if you're getting um, supportive editorials in the Guardian newspaper, or if, you know, every politician in Parliament is cheering you as you give them a speech telling them off, which is what happened to Greta. If you're invited to the European Can you tell me just (coughs) what was it like for you Brits to see Greta Thunberg come up because I, I i get swedish state news so yeah. we don't exactly get the full story i think it was interesting when she came to britain because i think it was the first time probably that the greta um train was derailed which makes me quite proud of britain because you know there's there's always been a cynical streak or a skeptical streak. we didn't see any derailing she was yeah uh, applauded by everyone she was by the political class but there were a few media voices and a few media consumers and i know this because i did a lot of discussions and i got a lot of emails uh people who were just rolling their eyes it was basically a, a, a collective rolling of eyes so you had the political class who kind of greeted her and said she was this godchild and we must never defy her or dissent from her opinion and she She's wonderful. And it was so embarrassing to watch this. I mean, there are photographs of her at Parliament and there are politicians around her and they are wide eyed. It's like they've had a vision of the Virgin Mary. I mean, their eyes are wide open. Their mouths have dropped. Uh, It's spooky and creepy. Um, So you had that. And I'm sure Swedish TV and lots of other European TV networks showed all of that stuff. But you also had a few media voices and a lot of phone ins on radio shows And people saying, what the hell is going on? So I think it's probably, and then Greta apparently did a Facebook post saying, you know, I'm disappointed by some of the comments that were made, whatever, presumably meaning columns written by certain people. Um, But I think actually when she came to Britain, it was probably the first time she hasn't been famous for that long. But, you know, she's been fawned over by the Nobel Prize, people who have nominated her by Obama, European Parliament. Then she comes to Britain, and yeah, the Nobel Peace Prize is uh, it's the, the Norwegians. Uh, they give out the Nobel Peace Prize, yeah. which they got from Sweden when they yeah. were still subject <laughs> to our rule. So uh, the Nobel Peace Prize, I believe, I, I haven't got this on paper or anything, but I, I think that the Norwegians just piss that prize <coughs> away every year to piss us off. <laughs> I would not be surprised. It does look increasingly like that. <laughs> but I failed. They, I think they failed this year because Swedes in general seem to like Greta quite a lot 
But I think, yes. Um, and isn't this a problem of the left, environmentalism? You don't see it as much on the right. But, you know, this is one of the my main concerns, because, you know, I still think of myself as left. I know yes, it's you're a, a Marxist. It's a waste of time even to think that, because everyone tells me I'm right-wing. But <laughs> the issue is, um, uh, you know, there's this idea that um, some people refer to environmentalism as a watermelon movement, by which they mean it's green on the outside, but red on the inside. So the argument, and this is put by people like James Delampole in the UK and quite a few um, climate change skeptics in Europe, their argument is that it looks like a happy, clappy, hippie environmentalist movement, but really it's a Trojan horse for socialism. I actually think that's really wrong. Why? Because, I'll tell you why, because I think environmentalism is proof of how much the left has lost the plot and has abandoned its founding principles. Because if you look at the some of the founding principles of being on the left, I mean, there are quite a few, and they've abandoned all of them. So, for example, one of the founding principles of the left was the idea of universalism, particularly the universalism of class. They've completely abandoned universalism for the particularism of identity politics, multiculturalism, this, these very divisive creeds. Another principle of the left, going right back to the French Revolution and the aftermath, was the idea of autonomy. The idea that people were pretty capable of running their own lives without having needing priests and princes and everyone else to tell them what to do. They've completely abandoned that and now signed up with the state and think we need to be instructed on every area of life. And then the third uh, core principle of the early left was the idea of growth was the idea of production, was the idea of consumption. Even Marx writes about the importance of production. And and if you look at someone like Sylvia Pankhurst, who was the most revolutionary of Britain's suffragettes, she was a communist suffragette, um, she talked about creating a world in which there would be so much stuff people wouldn't know what to do with it. So this was the vision uh, of the left in the early days. They wanted more production, more growth, uh, and a complete end to poverty. They've abandoned that too, and they've abandoned that principle most explicitly. So they now never argue for economic growth. They just argue for sustainable development, which is a complete nonsense buzzword. And they never argue for full employment. They never argue for industrialization. They never argue for making um, Nairobi just like New York. They never argue for these things, which the left might have done 50, 60, 70, or 100 years ago. Instead, they talk about saving the planet reigning in human well, aspiration, would, shrinking would, the human footprint that's the, the you know the human footprint to them is a dirty thing a destructive thing to me the human footprint is a wonderful thing because it has tamed the planet it's humanized the planet it's made the planet livable for seven billion human beings they want to shrink the human footprint and i think that reveals that this is not a left-wing project in the sense that we would have understood it it's a misanthropic um illiberal project which is about um crapping on humanity rather than liberating humanity well you know me and my stand on socialism <laughs> and i have grown up in a socialist country mm -hmm. the actually i think social democratic nadir of the world uh, i mean we were the first social, we were the first social democratic country in the world uh, it is the longest standing social democracy 40 years of uninterrupted wow. social democratic rule by democracy mm. 
the Swedes as one person just said, this is our party. We don't need other parties. Mm. So that's kind of collectivist in itself. Because I know that, and I've listened to quite a bit of you, you've said that the political colors, red and green, don't mix. Yeah. Is it because you feel it's unfair to people who suffer from colorblindness? <laughs> no, I think this is one of the arguments that I think irritates one of the arguments I make that really irritates environmentalists, which is, which is, I think they are reactionary and, um, they echo, uh, the, the old right, in fact. And they think of themselves as left wings. Was point, Malthus right? Malthus would have been a reactionary. Malthus, it, Malthus is. He was a priest, right? Yeah. He was, uh, for the younger listeners, he's kind of like Thanatos in Avengers. Yeah, sort of exactly. Thanos. He's exactly like Thanos. And, um, his great, the reason he was so, angry about uh, it's not a coincidence that he published his work at the end of the 1700s because he was really horrified primarily by the french revolution and by the revolutionary atmosphere in general which he thought was incredibly dangerous and so he expressed his disgust for these revolutionary this revolutionary atmosphere by coming up with this notion of finite resources, limited resources, we can't have a bourgeois revolution, really, because it would create too much stuff and too many people and it, it won't work out. But, you know, one of the, the point I've made to many Greens, one of the most, some of the most important things written by Marx was in response to Malthus. Um, they lived in different eras, but Malthus described, uh, Marx described Malthus's theories as a libel on the human race. And Marx's point was that um, this notion of finite resources, this notion that there's only so much we can do and then we've got to stop, is really um, is wrong and anti-human because it doesn't take into account humanity's ability to progress and to discover and to do things differently. So the example I've used quite a lot is um, uranium, right? Uh, 2,000 years ago, uranium was used to make glass yellow or to make mirrors yellow because it was that it looked beautiful like that. No one knew that you could use uranium to light up entire cities or destroy entire cities. They had no sense that it had any other quality. It's only later, through progress, through huge amounts of scientific progress and technological progress and political progress, you eventually arrive at a situation where you realize you can tap this resource. Same with coal. You know, 2,000, 3,000 years ago, people didn't know that coal contained trapped sunlight that was thousands of years old. They just knew it was black and had a weird thing, in the, a shiny bit in the middle, which looked nice as a necklace. Roman women would wear coal necklaces. Yeah, I didn't know that until I watched some of your stuff. Yeah, they had time. no idea that coal contained um, millennia-old sunlight. We'd discover it later, and then, boom, magic. Here you go, coal now can do all these wonderful things. The potential for us to discover the same thing about other resources is huge. Only, however, if we get over this kind of downbeat, anti-humanist, miserable agenda, which says that everything human beings does is destructive. It's only if we get over that and rediscover the kind of instinct for exploration and the instinct for discovery and the instinct for growth that we might make those future discoveries. But my argument, and I know this is a controversial argument because it sounds nuts, is that resources aren't finite in any meaningful way because the usefulness of resources is dependent upon how we think and how we progress. So they aren't fixed. The question is whether we discover the capability to explore them and use them more fruitfully.
Yeah, I think uranium is a great idea, uh, yeah. is a great example. Uh, also, if you mix the colors red and green, you get brown. In reality, <laughs> if you're an autist listening to this, yes, it's yellow in the physical sense. Uh, but, um, <laughs> I disagree that uh, that the green and the red that, that there isn't like a watermelon uh, thing, mm. and and I'll tell you why. It's uh, it's because of the Green New Deal, basically. Mm. That uh, you've heard of the yes. Justice Democrats with yes, uh, what's her what's her face Alexandria uh, Ocasio Cortez. Yes, yeah, because that's a mirror image of FDR's. Yes, but you think New is, Deal, right? Yeah. Um, it is. It's borrowing the language of FDR's New Deal, which has a great deal of moral authority still in US politics. So if you if you use that language, it kind of wins brownie points yeah, that, straight I, away. Her exact words, I think, is, uh, it is very important to draft the Green New Deal on the existing system of economic and social injustice. Yeah, but... She's an idiot, I'm afraid to say. <laughs> I mean, really, I'm amazed that she is this. She's become this extraordinarily popular figure. Well, I'm not amazed, in fact, because you know she's actually a very shallow politician, in my view. And if you look at the arguments that she's made for the Green New Deal, and and others have made for the Green New Deal, it's not. They're not very substantial arguments. They're not well stacked up in economic terms. And it is really just a huge virtue signal. You know, we love the planet and therefore we're going to do this thing, which they're never really going to do. Um, but the point is that the argument I make, it's like, you know, when I have, when right, right wing friends of mine will say identity politics is um, neo Marxism, right? You know, a lot of people say that. Jordan Peterson and those kind of people say that. And I always say to them, look, if it's Marxism you're worried about, you should actually be really happy about identity politics because identity politics is proof that the old Marxist ideas of um, class and power and revolution have completely been done away with and re been replaced by this kind of navel-gazing, divisive, separatist obsession with personal identity. So you should be happy even though I think identity politics is absolutely terrible. And I say the same thing about environmentalism. I think environmentalism is terrible and a very destructive political creed. But what I want to say to right-wingers, if you're worried about Marxism, you should be pretty happy about environmentalism because it's proof that the old Marxist idea of having a revolution in order to seize control of the means of production and expand production for the good of humanity, all those kind of arguments that used to be, which, by the way, I think are now pretty old, knackered, irrelevant ideas but, they are because we have 3d printers right exactly but um it proves that that's gone that has completely gone because what if you look at what environmentalists are saying yeah some of them are pro all of them are pro-state they want state controls on the i mean if you look at extinction rebellion they even want laws about how many times a year people can fly uh, they want laws that will raise the price of meat so that people buy it less, which basically means pricing poor people out of eating meat. So we'll go back to the old days when poor people just ate potatoes. In Sweden, McDonald's don't uh, have started phasing out meat. They yeah, are going to start right. with falafel now. No, I'm serious. I'm <laughs> That's serious. That's terrifying. That's a it really is terrifying, terrifying because if I want falafel, I go to a falafel you place. You don't go to McDonald's. No. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Sure. But so... um. So they are very pro-state. So I think when I say they're not socialists, or, or really they're not lefties in any meaningful sense, people think I'm defending them, but I'm not. They are pro-state. They're pro-social control. They want to uh, use the power of the state to control how people behave. And that is really, really outrageous and illiberal and anti-human. And it will hurt poor people more than anyone else. The argument I'm making is that that is not what being left-wing used to mean. And I will tell you that it might at least be what Swedish social democracy is and has yeah. always been, because in in this country now, Labour uh, is run by a sort of uh, a faction called Momentum. Yes. Yes. John Lansman's little... Uh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, you do know <coughs> that the Justice Democrats are pretty much... It's the same playbook. They're pretty similar, yeah. Yeah. And uh, in Sweden, we have Reformisterna, which within um, the Social Democratic Party. Right. Uh, they have the same playbook. They're all anti-Semitic, pro-Hamas, pro-Green New Deal. The Green New Deal of the, so uh, of the Justice Democrats in the United States is basically a copy-paste job from Sweden Social Democratic, Grön Skatteväxling, mm. uh, which means to sort of, uh, uh, well, they want to redistribute taxes, uh, they want to make meat and gasoline more expensive. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think uh, we pay um, pretty much two pounds per liter of gasoline now. Well, you know, the thing is, all of that's true and all of that's happening and all of that's bad. And I do think there is this interesting development. The, the fascinating thing in Europe at the moment is that social democracy is collapsing. Yes. I mean, in so many European countries... Um, Germany and France, most notably, the, the the social democratic parties are screwed. I mean, they are screwed in a in a historically unprecedented way, um, and that's fascinating. But then another interesting thing is happening, where the social democratic parties that still exist or are doing okay are developing these kind of supposedly radical wings. So, momentum is a very good example. The Justice Democrats. Sim similar things seem to be happening. Reformists in is what they're right? called in Sweden. Yeah. So um, it's all very interesting. But the thing is, I have two views on momentum because momentum is the, is a very good example of this, and they're pretty <laughs> worrying group in my way. In in my view, I've got two opinions on them. The first is we shouldn't panic about them. I don't think they are as evil. 
I certainly don't think they're as Marxist as the British press. They're not Marxist. They're not Marxist, and the British, but the British press will often refer to them as Marxist. And I want to just say, stop doing this because because momentum loves it when the British. I'm not a fan of Marxists. You right. know that, except yeah. for you, except for me. Uh, but but uh, they're not Marxists. No. They're, they're Scandinavian social democrats, and I, uh, and I can tell you why. They want a corporatist state, which yeah. is what we have in Sweden. Yeah, and the reformistana, the reformists, as they're called in Sweden, all they're calling for is going back to original Swedish social democracy, which is a collectivist system uh, of corporative control of society, yes. which Sweden has. I personally hope that the Anglo-Saxon countries and, and the states aren't able to adopt this. You're too individualist, I think. But, but you know, I think that's absolutely right. That's a very good description of what momentum is and what, what momentum wants. And the way I see the modern left, particularly in Britain, where I know more about the modern left, but I think it's happening in Europe too, is the more that the left becomes alienated from ordinary people, the more it warms to the state and the more it starts to see the state as the solution to every social problem. And that also, I think, is a fairly new development of the Western left in particular. Of course, under Stalinism, the state was everything. But among Western leftists, there did tend to be a suspicion of the state. And if you go right back to Marxism, I mean, the whole point of Marxism was to destroy the state. Yeah. That's the part of Marx everyone conveniently forgets, especially momentum types who are in bed with the state. And and momentum gets it. The most fascinating thing about Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party, which is basically run by momentum, is that it is more bourgeois and middle class than the Labour Party was under Tony Blair. Now, the reason that's significant is because when Tony Blair took control of the Labour Party in the mid-1990s and then became Prime Minister from 97 to 2010, a huge period of time for a Labour Prime Minister, the big story was that he had made Labour into a middle-class party. And that's true. He won the votes of millions of middle-class people in a way that Labour never had before. What's fascinating is that under Jeremy Corbyn, the supposedly radical man of the people it's become even more middle class because momentum gets its support mostly from the middle classes, public sector workers, so people who are employed by the state, um, academics, many of whom will be in the employ of the state in one way or another. Um, it's it's that kind of, it, it's a very feudalistic situation where you have all these kind of um, state employees and people whose job is basically to run other people's lives they are the ones who are rallying behind momentum whereas the working classes and the less well-off sections of society who actually don't like having their lives run by the state and would rather be left alone they're drifting away from the Labour Party and they're voting for the Tory party or for UKIP or for Nigel Farage's Brexit party which is going up in the polls so a, a fascinating shift is taking place where Momentum and so on is being colonized by the middle classes who are not only pro-state, but who are who are the state. And people who and are And they not, really are the state. They, they are the state. And, 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 and That's it, what they are. And in a way, isn't it true that they are right about the world ending? It's just not the world. It's their world. Their world is ending and they're absolutely terrified and they are becoming unhinged as a consequence. And this is what's so exciting about Brexit. This is why... How's that going, by the this way? <laughs> How is Brexit going? It's We're not, all wondering. You know, it's it, it, there's two ways to see it. The first, it, it's going terribly because they refuse to implement it. So it's just falling apart. But the other, so that's the rational, realistic 
assessment. But then the other way of viewing it is that it's going fantastically well because it's done what it was largely about doing, which is completely and utterly uh, rattling the political class to an unprecedented degree. It has shaken them up so much you, you wouldn't believe it. I mean, they have lost the plot. And uh, so if you look at Brexit as a people's rebellion against the elite, and I think that's exactly what it was. It was a people, you know, think about 2016, June 2016, the referendum, for months before the referendum, pretty much every wing of the establishment was begging us to vote Remain. Because you would get gonorrhea, right? Didn't. We would get gonorrhea. Um, the and now you have gonorrhea. Collapse. We've all got gonorrhea and we don't mind. But it was like, it was so stupid of them because you had the whole political class saying, please, please vote Remain. You have to, we're begging you. You had the whole business class. You had the whole Brussels machine. You had Barack Obama, the United Nations, the IMF. I mean, every global institution, every British institution basically saying, please vote Remain. And, of course, people are watching this, ordinary people, and thinking, ah, oh, you know, we've been waiting for years, decades, in fact, for an opportunity to rebel against the political establishment. And they've just handed us one. They've handed us a binary referendum, and they've told us that one choice will make them really happy and keep things as they are, and the other choice will make them really sad and turn everything on its head. It was a no-brainer. People traipsed to the ballot boxes in their millions to say, fuck you, to the entire establishment. And it's had exactly the desired effect. It has un it has dislodged the establishment. It has completely and utterly destroyed their moral and political authority in a way that I find incredibly exciting. And it is a, a, a really rebellious moment. Um, but what's weird about it is that Within the media world and the political world, pretty much everyone is a Remainer, right? They're yeah. mostly Remainers. So all that you hear in public discussion, because those people are dominant in public discussion, is how terrible Brexit will be. It's the end of the world. In the real world, w among people who have no newspaper columns, who never appear on TV, who have no, who don't have a seat in the House of Lords, so you never hear from these people, they think Brexit is a great idea. And they want it to happen. So the country is extraordinarily divided in a way that I think hasn't happened in this country, arguably since the Civil War in the 1640s, when we were divided between monarchists and parliamentarians. I think the divide between Remainers and Brexiteers is that same divide, just expressed in a different way. Because on one side, you have Remainers who, who don't want too much democracy because they think we're all untrustworthy, stupid, fat idiots who need to be re-educated in matters of health and environmentalism and everything else and on the other side you have leavers who actually like the idea of democracy because they recognize it's their only form of political power and who want to be left alone by the establishment it's as important a divide as the cavaliers and the roundheads was in the civil war but don't you see that the crisis of the the establishment as you call it uh it, 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 it this is The environmental movement and how unhinged, as you say, <laughs> it has become, uh, isn't it like a direct consequence? I mean, there is something of a watermelon here. That's what I'm saying, because they want to use, they want to use the old system, the old, and, and, and let's face it. So there's a few differences between our countries, mm. uh, the United States, Britain, and Sweden. Now, the United States was an individualist country up until First World War, where it had to build a federal state. 
1928, Herbert Hoover gave a speech called Rugged Individualism, in which he points out the difference between European politics and American politics. Mm. In American politics, the conservatives and the liberals, uh, they are sort of circling a middle point of freedom because the conservatives in the US understand that freedom guarantees them the right to preserve their tradition. And the liberals understand that freedom uh, guarantees them the right to develop new traditions. Mm. While in Europe, we have a different political spectrum where uh, conservatives and liberals or later on socialists left wing circle a midpoint of a big state. And also the big states that were built after the Second World War in Europe with the help of the US and Marshall uh, money were all social democracies. They were a compromise between, you know, and yeah. they wanted big states. Yeah. And, and the US ended up there with FDR as well. Because <coughs> yeah. a, a Herbert Hoover, you know, he, he said that uh, in this rugged individualism speech, he said, it's time for us, the, the First World War is over. It's time that we de-develop all these federal institutions that we have built up. But then the Great Depression came and he lost and FDR came in and so did the New Deal. And now we have three terribly, they used to be terribly affluent countries with big nanny states, as you would call them. You know, uh, yes. And to the extent that environmentalism is one of the new justifications for having a big state or for more state intervention, for example, controlling the price of food or controlling what you can do and so on that's true that environmentalism lends itself to the expansion of state power unquestionably and that's a bad thing um but the you know i think you're right to talk about the post-war period in the european context because that is incredibly significant because what really happens in the post-war period is that you know the the elites of europe took the wrong lesson entirely from the Second World War and particularly from the Nazi experience because they looked at the Nazi experience and saw it as a product of democracy and as a product of mass politics. They, that was their great fear of Nazism. They thought it was a product of people going mental. Um, that's how they understood it. So as a consequence, the, the institutions that they built up in the post-war period tended to be about insulating politics from public pressure. So uh, if you look at the European Union, you know, right back to the EEC and even before that, um, or the development of the idea of human rights and the Convention on Human Rights, um, which actually limits freedom rather than expanding freedom. Um, or if you look at the growth of the judiciary, which increasingly plays a key role in political decision making. Or if you just look at the growth and the growth and the growth of the welfare state and welfareism, which means that increasingly more and more people's lives are governed in some way by the state all of these things were about insulating the political realm from public pressure so the european union is the best example so in the european union you have the 27 28 member states um pooling their national sovereignty outsourcing decision making to this largely unaccountable group which is beyond our reach um, and saying to them, you should decide on these issues because we don't want people to decide on them. And that's a, the clearest example of the post-war dynamic being the creation of these massive bureaucratic structures, which are designed to do politics in a way that is far away from ordinary people. 
And they're all modeled pretty much on Swedish social uh, democracy, yeah. which and, is but, a totalitarian concept. But see, this is what's so exciting about the populist revolt that's happening in different ways across the Western world, whether it's the vote for Trump, which is a bit complicated and strange, or Brexit, which I think is uncomplicated and and wonderful, or the rise of various populist parties in Europe, some of which are good, some of which are not so good, whatever. What's interesting about all of this populist stuff is that I do think it represents ordinary people trying to break down that insulation. What's so strange about Trump? He is Brexit. No, he's not Brexit. Well, but he, he sort of is. The Republicans hated him, the Democrats yeah. hated him, and, and, and the establishment basically told the voters, we absolutely do not want this person. Completely agree with you. The dynamic behind Trump is the same as the dynamic, the dynamic behind Brexit, which is voters saying, we really, really have had enough of the old establishment, and we're going to do the thing you've told us now not to do. So the dynamic is the same, but Br- Trump is more complicated because... Right. If you vote for Brexit, you're just voting for an idea. You're not voting for an individual. You're not voting for any policies. You're not voting for a political party. You're not voting for anything like that. You're voting for an idea, which is leave the European Union. It happens to be, as we've discovered, the most radical, unsettling idea of modern times because it has unraveled everything in British politics. I mean, literally everything has unraveled. So it's an explosive idea. But that's all you're doing. You voted for it and you went home again. It was thrilling. It's the first time I've ever actually got excited about voting. Hold, shaking as I was holding that piece and of paper. And what did you vote hand. for? <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave listeners to guess. Um, whereas if you vote for Trump, that your instinct is the same as our instinct was. You know, screw you. Mm. But the complicating factor is you're voting for a man who has various policies and will do various things. And some of them are illiberal things, right? He's not interested in press freedom, for example. Um, his approach to immigration is questionable at times. Um, he is, he, he, um, is envious, he says, of English libel laws because it means you can shut down journalists who criticize you, criticize you too much. He's not done the economic things he said he would do. So there's all sorts of issues. Now, I've always said that I am, I'm not so much anti-Trump as anti-anti-Trump, because I think the anti-Trump lobby in the US is worse than the Trump lobby. So that's always been my position. But that doesn't mean I like Trump, because he's a, he comes with so much stuff. So that's why he's complicated, whereas Brexit is much cleaner. Brexit is basically lighting a fire under the establishment and going home again. And that, I think, has been far more effective, which is why I've argued many times, and I stick by this, that in the Western world, Brexit is the most important political phenomenon of our times um, because it is um, such a clean break with the old establishment. I mean, they probably won't let it happen, which then in itself will give rise to all sorts of new problems and conflict potentially. But it's such a clean break with the old establishment and it's been so inspiring to people around the world. You know, Trump, when he was campaigning, referred to the Brexit states, you know, the states that were more likely to go with him than with Hillary. Um, When I go to Europe, people ask me about Brexit. They want to know how do we get some Brexit here. I did a, a speaking tour in Australia a couple of years ago, and every single person wanted to talk to me about Brexit. I mean, it has it is this phenomenon. But Australia aren't exactly in the European Union. No, they're not in the European Union, although they are in the Eurovision Song Contest. But, <laughs> yes. they're, um, but they see Brexit as um, akin to some of their own history, because there's a strong tradition in Australia of larrikinism. 
And larrikinism is something you'd like a lot, which is this kind of, they say that it comes from the convict mentality. So Britain ships out all these convicts to Australia, which basically means that the first uh, ordinary communities in Australia are made up of people who are pretty crazy. Um, and their argument is that that gives rise to a very rebellious culture. Australia is a phenomenal place. People don't accept political correctness. I've never been. In the way that they do in Europe. They're very questioning. They haven't. D.H. Lawrence went to Australia and wrote a book called Kangaroo. It's a very good study of Australia. In I've which, only read another book by D.H. Yeah, Lawrence. The famous one. Yes, uh, the one about sodomy. <laughs> that's right. Uh, but he made the point that in Australia, nobody rules. And that's what Australia's always been like. So when I go there and say, the great thing about Brexit is that no one really rules Britain anymore. They're all sitting back saying, yeah, that's like us. So, But the point is, Brexit has had this extraordinary global impact. And it has petrified elites around the world who are now worried that something similar might happen in their countries. And it has energized people around the world who now think, oh, it is possible to screw over this establishment who's ruling over us. So it's had this extraordinary impact, which I think is exciting. And that's one of the reasons why I think Brexit has got to be defended. No, I think you're right. And I, I and do you think Corbyn, if elected, will enact? No. No, he won't, right? He will not. And, you know, the, the, this is the really tragic and horrendous thing about Corbyn. The only... Apart in, from being a fucking Jew hitter. Uh, well, the anti-Semitism crisis <laughs> is one thing. Um, the only interest... Because Corbyn has been on the back benches of Parliament since the 1980s. I re, I've told this story a million times, but I remember when I was 16... 15 whatever me and a friend went to um and that's a long time ago me and a friend went to a meeting about the first gulf war so this would have been 1991 i guess and um we were we felt that we were anti-war so we should go to this meeting we were very young we thought let's get involved and jeremy corbyn came out to speak and me and my friend looked at each other and said oh not that old fool that is a long time ago and even then we thought he was an old fool so the fact that this old fool has now risen to the top of the labor party is completely bizarre and very strange and very odd but there was one interesting deeply principled thing about this old fool for his whole political life he was implacably opposed to the european union He voted against every single treaty in Parliament. He voted against the EU all the time. He did these wonderful speeches about how awful the EU was, how bureaucratic it was, how it was designed to protect bosses and bureaucrats rather than ordinary people. Because he comes from a Labour tradition, which includes people like Tony Benn and Barbara Castle, who are these hugely famous, important Labour figures in mid-20th century Britain. He comes from that tradition. But then, lo and behold... We finally get a referendum on the EU in 2016 and he ditches all his principles and campaigns to remain. And what does That's, that teach you about socialists, Brendan? It's the most unforgivable thing he's done, leaving aside possibly the anti-Semitism crisis. It's extraordinary and not enough people talk about it. In fact, not enough people talk about the fact that he absolutely ditched his principles. So no. And the reason he did that is because the Labour Party has become this metropolitan middle-class machine and the metropolitan middle classes are pro-Remain and he wants to keep them happy. So if Labour gets in, they will screw over Brexit in the same way the Tories are doing. I believe you're right. I also want to tell you that you should be warned. Um, 
Jeremy Corbyn is a classic Scandinavian social democrat, <laughs> which is why he socializes with Hamas and the likes and opens the war, uh, like the door t- to Islamism, like Olaf Palme did for us in the 70s. You know, it's extraordinary. Uh, the, uh, at the time that we're speaking, it's, um, it's been revealed that Trump is going to come to the UK. He's going to have a state visit, um, which is only two other presidents from the US have had state visits, Obama and Bush, I can't remember if it's Bush Senior or Bush Junior, but anyway, it's a it's a relatively rare thing for an. So Trump's going to have a state visit, which means the red carpet will be rolled out, the Queen will be involved, there'll be a huge dinner in Buckingham Palace, all this kind of stuff. So of course the left are going completely nuts. They're going to protest, and some parliamentarians have refused to go to the state dinner, which is a pretty big deal to turn down an invitation from it's the Queen. It's an insult. It's an insult to Trump, and it's an insult to the Queen. I'm not actually bothered about insulting the Queen because I'm more Trump. I'm a Republican but, or Trump. But but what it's about sh- relationship between countries, <laughs> right? And but what's striking is this: Corbyn has refused to go for dinner with Trump, so he's not going to the state dinner. Corbyn went to the state dinner for the Chinese premier recently a couple of years ago the chinese premier oversees a country in which there is no democracy no freedom of speech and no significant no serious but it's a one-party socialist state right so 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 it's the state he wants it's the the double standard is is extraordinary and of course as many people have pointed out and as you have just pointed out uh, corbyn has had dinner with people from hamas which is an explicitly anti-Semitic organization. It's in their constitution. Um, he has rubbed shoulders with Islamists. He has shared platforms with people who think um, the Jews are the cause of all evil in the world. So people are now quite legitimately saying to him, why do you refuse to have dinner with Trump, who you think is a racist? You might be right, you might be wrong. But you're willing to have dinner with other racists. And he has no answer for that. Because the and that those double standards that are coming from Jeremy Corbyn's party are now starting to really piss people off, and uh, his Labour Party, his the momentum movement, I think, is finally fading away, and it's losing its momentum and it's losing its support, and I don't think it's going to last much longer. So, what do you think it would take in the states to stop the Justice Democrats? Because I if they turn the U.S. into a corporatist state, then we're all fucked. I think... But, you know, the interesting thing... I'm not a big fan of the Justice Democrats, but you will disagree with me on this. I'm very interested in Bernie Sanders. Because... I have to clarify what I mean by that. I don't like his economic policies. I think they are um, very narrow-minded. They're very unambitious. And, of course, it's largely focused on tax and spend, redistributive justice, as they call it, and so on. And I'm, I just think that's um, very low horizons. So the economic stuff, I'm like, ugh. But what is interesting about Bernie Sanders is that he has some very good liberal instincts. So he's very critical of students who want to ban controversial speakers, for example. He's been very good on defending Second, second Amendment rights, which really pisses off his left-wing supporters. He's also very critical of identity politics. So uh, in recent weeks, people have said, oh, here we go, Bernie Sanders, another old white man. And he has pushed back and said things like, stop judging people by their race, stop judging people by their sex. Um, And he says he's even said class is a more important and defining issue than race, which is a really controversial thing to say amongst the identitarian crowd. What I find fascinating about Bernie Sanders is that I think without even realizing it himself 
he is instinctively pushing back against the woke left the new left the kind of identitarian left which is a very divisive but at the same time they're rallying around him they are rallying around him but it's a very fractious relationship and this is so i find him interesting but i think he's going to fail because i think the the thing is that he represents the old economic class-based left from the kind of pre-1960s period. I'm not saying he's that old. Well, he's quite old. But he represents that old left, which was concerned with economic questions, questions of class, questions of living conditions and pay, you know, traditional economic left-wing concerns. His solutions to them are not very good, but that's what he represents. He's up against a new left, which is the post-60s left and the post-1980s left in particular, the kind of millennial left now, which is not interested in the economy at all, uh, no interesting class, and they've never met a working class person in their lives. They're obsessed with identity issues. They're obsessed with things like trans toilets in schools because they think asking a, a boy who thinks he's a girl to poop in the boys' toilets is a crime against humanity. They're obsessed with uh, censoring right-wing speakers. They're obsessed with cultural issues over economic issues. Bernie is in this incredibly interesting middle ground where he's representing that old economic left but his support mainly comes from this new woke post-economic left. So I find him interesting because I think he sums up a serious crisis within left-wing politics more generally. I The reason I think he's going to fail is because I think he's given too much ground to the woke leftists. I think if he were to stand on a populist platform, a populist economic platform, saying some of the things that Trump said about jobs and growth and and um so on and and if he resisted political correctness which is incredibly unpopular among ordinary americans he would clean up but i don't think he's brave enough to do that that's a shame actually but uh no it's not really and and, and i'm not a trump supporter because Mm. i'm not american first of all but i do see a problem with the swedish type socialism spreading I, I really do, because I think a lot of the identitarian <coughs> things that you're wrestling with in this country, in the U.S. right now, is coming from Sweden. It's coming right. mainly mainly from, uh, I guess, American intellectuals in the 60s who had certain ideas because they took too much acid and yeah. you know, confused it with reality. And I'm not against acid. I'm just against <laughs> leftist intellectuals who do it. <laughs> uh, um, uh, and, uh, and, and these ideas got exported to Sweden, which is an extremely conformist country where the state can actually implement any social engineering program it wants, test it, and then export it uh, as a success story because it's a socialist government. So everything it does is a success story. I mean, the 1st of May this year was incredible in Sweden to watch our prime minister, who's head of the Social Democratic Party. They're in power. They're uh, undemocratically, by the way, Mm. uh, since the election. Mm -hmm. They didn't win the election. They're still in power. They've been in power for the most part of a 100 years. And he's standing there and he's saying everything that's wrong (laughs) with society as if, though, he's the underdog applying for the position of the premier. But, you know, premiership. Yes. And it's... It's it's insane. But Sweden is, I think, plays a central role in all of this stuff. Because Sweden... I love Sweden. I know you do. I love Swedish ha- people. I love going to Sweden. And um, I think it's a fascinating place. And etc, etc, etc. But it's also historically 
very interesting and and sometimes quite problematic. And one one of the things that happens with the Western European left, particularly in Britain, is that for a very long period of time, they held up Sweden as the great model. I mean, the Swedish model is all that they went on about. And basically, they meant that, uh, you know, a big state, a kind of quite controlling state, a welfare state, a, a, and a consensual, as they saw it, you might call it conformist political culture. That's actually the thing they most liked about Sweden because they hated they hate it when pesky people are putting their hands up and saying, oh, I disagree with this or I don't like this or I'm not going to vote for the Labour Party this year because they've pissed me off. They hate that. So one of the things I think they most liked about Sweden is they saw it as a consensual conformist country and they really envied that. But this is where I think Sweden is interesting I mean, it's interesting in general, but this is where I think it's newly interesting, which is that that Swedish model talk doesn't work anymore because even in Sweden, there are populist rumblings. Now, I know that they take a different form than they do in other parts of Europe, and they might not be as successful as they have been in other parts of Europe because Sweden has that solid state socialist tradition. It's a totalitarian state. Right, the, but <laughs> there's a there's a slowness built into the system. Yes, the, exactly right. A slowness built into the system, and we have a similar problem in the UK. In fact, there is a, a our party political system is very old and very established, and and has deep roots even in society. So dislodging it is proving very difficult, although it's happening bit by bit. Um, and Sweden, I think, is is like that too. But even in Sweden, even in the model country, even in the country that every European bureaucrat points at as as a heaven, there is upset. Of course, it's right? crashing. It's, it's crashing. There's Sweden Democrats. There's the immigration crisis. There's people. Our saying, currency has fallen twenty two percent since the election. Right. So that's like a coup. So things are happening. The question is: this is the big question: who will capitalize on that, and who will push it in a interesting direction? It seems for the time being, it will partly be done by the Sweden Democrats. Will other voices emerge? I think one problem with, in Sweden is that the possibility for a radical voice to emerge or, or a left-wing voice, and I mean a left-wing voice in the good sense, kind of a left populist, left liberal populist um, anti-censorship voice, the potential for that in Sweden is quite limited, I think. Precisely yes. because the left... You're speaking to that voice. Right, you, you, it's you. <laughs> yes. Uh, but because the left became so co-opted into the state structures and become so became so compromised. They are the state structures. Became so compromised. Whereas the difference with the UK is that um, a large section of the left got co-opted into the state structures so that by the time of the 70s and 80s, they were basically running the country via local councils and bureaucracy and everything else. But there was always a very significant section of the left that was outside of that, the Trotskyist left, the anti-Stalinist left, the anti-Soviet Union left, which was which was quite influential for a period of time. So there's a tradition of a left that's outside of the state and which is tended to be fairly libertarian or fairly questioning or fairly critical. Sweden, I think, has less of that. But th th I'm excited about Sweden because I think if populism were to come to Sweden in any kind of significant way it would cause almost as much upset in Europe as Brexit has. for the Precisely because Sweden has always been their go-to example. And if that is no longer their go-to example... I know. ...they're in trouble. Yes. Which is why it's important for people like you to continue stirring it up. I, I, I'm doing my best, <laughs> Brendan. And it's quite lonely, I'll tell you. Um, <clears throat> no, I think we're actually sort of... Oh, Absolutely.
How long was that? Uh, one hour and 23 minutes. Wow. How do you feel now? I feel great. You do? Do you want to talk more? Or you yeah, think sure. That's good? Because yeah. uh, I, I wanted to ask you two more questions. Yes, please do. <coughs> First, I want to ask you, what drives you? I, I, I usually don't ask questions like these, but I'm quite cu curious by now. That's a good question. What drives me? I think, um, well... There's the grand answer, and then there's the kind of grubby answer. The grand, I have both, please. <laughs> the grubby answer is that I've always just been really anti-bourgeois. I've always really disliked bourgeois people. Like, you know, Pasolini in, in, in Italy. His his great drive, he really disliked the bourgeoisie. And when you say bourgeois, you say... Uh, you mean people who like keeping up appearances? Conformist. Yes, I, I mean that kind of middle... Upper middle class section of society who often think that they're very radical, um, but really are quite conformist and mean and very anti working class, very anti ordinary people, instinctively anti democratic, um, hugely illiberal. They always favor censorship over risky experimental ideas or arguments. That I mean, that layer of society. I was reading recently that Pasolini. Um, Even in the 1968 revolts, um, he wrote a very contrarian piece in an Italian newspaper saying that he sympathized more with the police than the protesters. Now, I wouldn't go that far because I don't like the police very much. But his argument was that the police were the sons of the working classes and they get a very bad pay. Whereas the protesters were the sons of the bourgeoisie yeah. and of professors And they were there punching working class policemen in the face. I just thought it was such an interesting way to understand. I don't agree entirely with it, but I thought it was very interesting. And it really brought home to me, I just can't deny it, that one of the things that does drive me is um, uh, that instinctive dislike of that section of society. But then the, that's the grubby answer. The grander answer, I guess, is that I do really think democracy right now is the most important issue i really do think it is because so much hinges on democracy so firstly it's the only means through which ordinary people who have no power whatsoever can have a say the reason it's important for ordinary people to have a say firstly because people should be equal should have an equal say blah 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 but that's quite abstract it's also important because ordinary people tend to have very different views from the liberal supposed elite they have different views because they experience society in a different way they um, don't live in the same academic and political bubbles so they are skeptical of political correctness they are skeptical of the idea that the st welfare state should look after every aspect of their lives they tend to have a genuine natural uh, well-founded skepticism of what passes for political opinion that's why democracy is so important because it brings into the political realm voices which are very different to the ones that you and I don't like. You know, the guardianista voice or the, you know, the, the kind of... Um, oh, the, the guardianista actually sums it up, right. I think. That, yeah. So that's why... Uh, so Australia is really interesting because Australia has compulsory voting. Now, I'm against compulsory voting because I don't think people should be compelled to do anything they don't want to do. But an interesting byproduct of Australia having compulsory voting, which means everyone in the country has to vote, is that politics there is radically different because uh, politicians have to appeal to all sorts of people, including people who don't live in the kind of comfortable chattering class circles, but who live in the bush or in the suburbs and who are utterly non-politically correct, 
who don't think climate change is a real thing, who think immigration needs to be tightly controlled, who think freedom of speech is more important than protecting some feminists' feelings. Those voices have to be incorporated. So that's why democracy is important. And I really do think that defending democracy is the most important thing. The other good thing about defending democracy, and this pertains to the libertarian issue and the individualist issue. Then I don't need to pose my second question. Yeah, right. So the other important thing about is that you can't have democracy without freedom of speech. Because in order for democracy to work, people have to have the right to stand in elections, to form political parties, to publish political pamphlets, to make political arguments, to sell political newspapers. Democracy only works if we have freedom of speech. So I always bristle, because a, a lot of libertarians will say to me that individual liberty and democracy are contradictory phenomena. And I've never bought that idea. Because Why would they say because that? Because they think that the tyranny of the majority, which is how they understand that's democracy... Not, that's not democracy. No, but <laughs> they think that that's a threat to minority rights. This is a big thing in American libertarian circles. Huge I, thing. I, I'm, yes, first of all, uh, America is a republic. <laughs> so it, it, it's not. It's a federal republic. Mm -hmm. It's not a democracy in, in that sense. And second of all, uh, Western liberal democracy, the entire idea is protection of minority, not majority rules. Majority rules is something else. That's mob rule. But the thing is, um, but see, this is, the issue I have is that I think democracy is probably the best political idea mankind has ever had and the most radical. And you can tell it's the most radical because even now it's controversial. And I know this because I've spent the past three years... But wouldn't you agree that the, the idea of democracy is that uh, the majority cannot enforce their will on the minority? And the smallest minority is the individual. Yes, the, the, I think, um, yes... So the minority and the individual, right down to the individual. I mean, John Stuart Mill makes this point. John Stuart Mill said, if, if a million people have one opinion and one person has the alternative opinion, those million people have no right whatsoever to impose their opinion on the individual. I completely agree with that. But the thing about, so the majority cannot curtail the rights of conscience or the rights of speech or the rights of religion or anything else off the minority completely agree with that that's not acceptable and and we should not have that kind of society however the majority rules in the sense that if a majority of people choose a particular political party or a particular political system or a break with the european union then that has to happen and that doesn't mean enforcing your will on them i mean i suppose it can be interpreted as enforcing the majority will, because there will be a minority who don't like it, etc. But that's not the same. It's not that, the same thing. It's uh, not but the same. See, but see, you're right. It's not the same thing. And the problem that I have come up against, and lots of Democrats have come up against over the past three years in the UK, is that people say it's the same thing. And they will say that because 17.4 million people voted for Brexit and 16.1 million voted against it, if we enact it, those 17.4 million are imposing their will on the 16.1 million. It's not true. And another key thing about democracy is the consent of every member of society to live by the final decision for a period of time. 
which is also uh, dependent on freedom of speech yes. you, so that you have you can uh, argue against it you can rational can, debate and yeah. uh, and and, uh, and w- what what we get from uh, britain in sweden is that uh, the brexiteers uh, all lied yeah they all lied throughout the entire campaign <coughs> And that's why you all have gonorrhea now. That's why. But, you know, it's such bullshit. It really is bullshit. Um, you know, both official campaign groups, both the official Leave campaign group and the official Remain campaign group, definitely told a few lies, definitely didn't cover themselves in glory in the way in which they campaigned. That's true. But the idea that people were primarily influenced by those groups is untrue. And there were so many polls showing this. There were so many polls asking Leave voters, what was the biggest influence on your decision to vote Leave? And those official groups came way down the list. So did the media as well, in fact. And so did politicians. Top of the list tended to be friends and family, workmates, views I've held for a long time. People have been Eurosceptic in this country for a long time. Time. I the saw the that film that the HBO did with <coughs> Benedict Cumberbatch. Yes, the, the I, and I quite liked it. Yeah, uh, but uh, and I found it so strange because in Sweden uh, everyone was so upset with this uh, analytica, what a Cambridge Analytica mm, thing, mm-hmm. and they were like they were marketing for people who hadn't gotten political ads for years, and I was like, y- yeah, yeah, w- what what's it? What's the problem here, Yeah, what's exactly? the problem? It's, it's become a conspiracy theory, in fact. That's what's happening now. The whole Cambridge Analytica scare, the whole idea that Russian bots invaded the UK and made us all pro-Brexit, you know, there's a real conspiracy theory vibe to all of this. And it's incredibly insulting to ordinary voters because the presumption is that they're so gullible and so suggestible that they see one Facebook meme and suddenly they're out saying, I hate the EU. It's ridiculous. And the truth of the matter is that people voted against the EU because they want to leave the EU. It's so uncomplicated. And this idea that they were brainwashed into doing it or hoodwinked into doing it by demagogues or adverts or whatever is an anti-democratic libel against the people of Britain. And it's the exact same argument that was used by people who opposed the Chartists. The Chartists were a group in the 1840s who campaigned for the right of working-class men to vote. The thing that was always said to them is, well, working-class men are too stupid, you idiots. They can't have the vote. They don't know what they're doing. It's the same argument that was made against the suffragettes in the 1910s. We were told that women were too visceral rather than rational. Were in, incapable against Jews uh, and against black Jews people. and blacks, all of them. It was always said that they were too emotional or visceral or backward or uneducated to have the right to vote. And I've always liked the argument that was made by the Chartists. The Chartists are my heroes in many ways. They campaigned for working class men having the right to vote, which we did in the 1840s. We didn't get it, by the way, until 1918. Uh, that's the year in which women finally got the vote, women o- over the age of 30. Everyone always forgets that it's also the year that working class men got the vote. Um, the Chartists made the point, they always they said in one of their newspapers published in the 1840s, they said, you know, we're not saying that working people and ordinary people are as good at politics as lords and bureaucrats and priests. We're saying they're better. And the reason they're better is because they live in society in a way that those other people often don't, in their ivory towers or in their cathedrals or in their political bubbles. They said working people, ordinary people, the uneducated people, the people you think are pieces of shit, are actually often better placed 
to make big political decisions and better placed to take part in political debate and better placed to decide the future of the country because they understand society better than you do. And I think that's a truer argument today even than it was back then because we currently live under political establishments and bureaucracies which are completely out of touch with life yes completely detached from society i mean physically detached in the case of brussels which is this kind of um oligarchy full of people who've never been to rent seekers um, rent seekers who've never been to um uh gothenburg or or stoke in england or or bordeaux in front they've never been to these places they have no understanding of these places they have no understanding of the people who live there i would sooner trust the first 10 people i meet outside of this building walking through the streets to negotiate our exit from the eu than i would 10 people who'd been educated at oxford university and have worked in parliament for the past 20 years because we i think we tend to underestimate the wisdom of ordinary people and the fact that their instincts are usually very good well i I, you know i don't agree with you i i do think people are quite stupid but i i worked at swedish state television and this was my first reality check because <coughs> when I was quite young, this was, I don't know, 15 years ago. Yeah. And I came in with the notion that I thought everyone was stupid. And and then I realized that, yeah, maybe they're stupid, but they're not as stupid as the people working in this building. And they're definitely not as stupid as the people working in this building think that they are. That's – see – so we kind of agree. Yeah. Because, I mean, I I just think, come from the other direction. Yeah, come, yeah. So you come from the fact that they're not as stupid as people think. And I come, I agree with that. And I would say they're far more sensible than people give them credit for. And, um, you know, but as I was saying, democracy remains an incredibly radical idea. I think, I still think, you know, thousands of years after it was first invented and hundreds of years after it was first implemented in America and France and Britain and then across many many parts of the world it remains a really exciting idea because it sometimes i have to think about it and i have to think hold on so my mother for example who left school at the age of 14 never went to university um had six children had um uh, pretty ordinary jobs it's it's amazing to think she, when it comes to election time she has the exact same power as uh, richard branson or anyone else who's incredibly wealthy and is used to having an enormous amount of power. That's a really exciting idea and a really important idea. And it remains a really radical idea. The idea that the, you know, the, the woman who cleans the building that we're currently sitting in has the same power at election time, has the same power over whether we stay in the EU or leave the EU as the man who owns this building. That, I think, is an incredibly valuable thing. It's a very equalizing thing. And even more importantly than that, it means that voices outside of the kind of stifling mainstream bubble of correct thought have to be consulted. And that's the thing, that's the only thing I would say that can ensure that politics doesn't go completely down the drain, but instead always has the potential to become more interesting, more liberal, and more humanistic. I agree, as long as that democracy is founded on the first principle of freedom of speech. Yes, it has to be. It has to be. It has to be. And I come from a country where we don't really have freedom (laughs) of speech, nor democracy. But um, we have demokratur. 
What's that? It it was it's a word invented <coughs> uh, by one uh, a Swedish author called Will uh, Moberg, I think, uh, and uh, it describes like a proto democracy that that and and it looks like a democracy. It feels like a democracy. You're sort of offered votes uh, on different issues, right. but there's only one alternative all the time. Right. So you can only vote for one alternative. Yes. Like, because you know the Social Democrats back when he lived, they had almost fifty percent of the vote. Well, that's an and they built the system so that the biggest party always gets the most money, gets the most. Right. Uh, well, they own pretty much our version of the BBC, the Swedish but state see, te- television that grounds out other voices. And yeah. yeah, see, that's a really important point because the franchise only really has meaning if there's real choices to be made. Yes, because if you if you are technically franchised, i.e., you have the vote but there's no real alternative to vote for, then it starts to become pretty meaningless. The problem, of course, is I think some people look at that fact, and it is indeed a fact, that often the choices between parties is incredibly limited, and they say, oh, this proves democracy is a sham, which I think is the wrong conclusion. Well, maybe they should look to Russia, well, where they have elections, but only Putin. Right, that's right. Yeah. And, and I think the, the conclusion that ought to be drawn is that what we need is to re-energize political life in order to give people real choices. That's once again. That's why Brexit was so exciting. That's why the turnout in the Brexit election, Brexit referendum, was seventy-two percent. Now I know that doesn't sound high to some Europeans, but that's high in Britain. You know, in some of our recent elections, it's been sixty percent. And also, uh, countries that present numbers with election uh, turnout in the nineties and hundreds. Are usually not democracies. It's usually not democracies, no, especially if the winner gets 96% of the vote, and you always think that's a bit suspicious. Yeah. But um, the, the Brexit vote, I would argue, it's the first time since we got the franchise in 1918 or 1928, if you include women under the age of 30 who got the vote in 1928. So we've had the vote for everyone in this country for 90 years, 91 years, whatever. It's the first time in that period where we had a choice that would... Um, not just decide who is in Downing Street, making pretty small decisions, but how the whole country is organised, constitutionally, politically, um, every facet of the organisation of this country was suddenly entrusted to us. So what happened is the political establishment for the first time outsourced its sovereignty to the people. And people grasped it with both their hands and said, this is thrilling and we're going to say, change everything so that is a reminder of how radical and important democracy is but it depends upon having a real choice and in that referendum we had a real choice we had a choice to stay in the oligarchy which means limiting democracy living under bureaucracy um living under the boot of political correctness or leaving the oligarchy and rediscovering democracy thinking for ourselves and maybe even boosting the argument for freedom of speech and alternative views of the world. And, and now the only that. question is, Is are you a real democracy? Will you leave? Will yeah. it be implemented? Because if it's not, you're not. And it, then it's time to sharpen the... Then it's, what do you call these big pitchforks? Yes. Pitchforks. Then it's time to... You know, uh, maybe you're joking with that comment, but I I'm think, not no, joking. But, uh, and I there's, think... There's a point where words are meaningless. The, the, and beyond <laughs> that... You sharpen your pitchfork and you light up your torches the, the and you point, march on Parliament. Yeah, the point I've made to many times and got into trouble a couple of times is um, if people can't affect change through the ballot box, 
what are they meant to do? Are they meant to say, okay, that's fine, we have no rights? Or are they meant to take action? And um, there was a huge rally outside Parliament um, a few weeks ago. Brexit means Brexit rally, which I was one of the speakers, one of the most terrifying experiences of my life, speaking to 10,000 people outside Parliament. And in my talk, in my speech, three-minute speech, I said, the people inside that building, i.e. the House of Commons, are liars and traitors, and we need to do something about it. And even that was treated as a controversial comment and, and as a kind of insightful comment. But I, I'm deadly serious. If Brexit doesn't happen, then democracy in this country is finished and we have to think of new ways to affect political change. And it won't be our fault when that comes to pass. It will be the fault of the political establishment who reneged on the historic deal which said that the people have a say in political life. They reneged on it, and we took action. I completely agree, and I hope your countrymen are listening. <laughs> I hope so too. Thank you for participating, Bremen O'Neill. You have been listening to Deconstructive Criticism, and the guest of this episode was Spiked Online's editor, Brendan O'Neill. You can find his work on Spiked Online. He also has his own podcast, The Brendan O'Neill Show, available where podcasts are found. And the links to his social media can be found at my webpage, www.aronflam.com. That's Aaron Flam, Aaron with one A and Flam with one M at the end, dot com where you can also find merchandise in the form of t-shirts and mugs with positive, uplifting messages on them. Also, they are quite stylish. Soon, even English speakers like yourself will be able to buy my book, This is a Swedish Tiger, which might fill in some of the blanks in Western history due to cultural misunderstandings. And that will also be found on my webpage, www.armflam.com. Thank you for supporting Deconstructive Criticism at Patreon, where you can find it by writing its Swedish spelling, Deconstructive Kritik. That's Deconstructive with K's instead of C's and no E at the end, and Kritik as in K-R-I-T-I-K, Kritik. You can also support my work via Bitcoin, PayPal and Swish number 0046-768-94-3737. Double O four six seven six eight nine four three seven three seven. All found at my website aronflam.com or underneath the episode you're listening to in the description, regardless of which platform you are using. Thank you for listening, liking, sharing, and commenting. I am Aaron Flam. Until next, have a good unit of time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.